please stand for our scripture reading? This morning it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Have you ever discovered something new and exciting? You love it so much that you want to share it with somebody? And you go and share it with that person, and they're kind of like, yeah, that's, that's great, I'm glad you had that experience. And then maybe a couple weeks go by or a month goes by and this person comes back to you and they're like, I had this really awesome experience. I read this book or I saw this movie and you're like, that's exactly what I told you about. When I was in college, I volunteered for the college radio station on our campus and the way college radio works is you would get kind of the music before like it would go on the popular radio. It would go out to everybody. And so often I would hear music before most of my friends did. And I'd be like, wow, this band or this song is so great. And they'd be like, yeah. And then months would go by, and when it finally hits the radio, they'd come back to me. Have you heard this song? Yeah, months ago I told you about it. Weren't you listening? It's so interesting, though, I think, how things hit us differently when we actually experience it versus when somebody just tells us. The impact is completely different. It's different when we hear it, when we see it, when we eat it. Somebody can tell you about Mount Rushmore and the grandiosity of the faces carved in stone. Somebody can tell you about Michelangelo's David and how huge and intricate it is. Somebody can tell you about seeing Yosemite being between Half Dome and El Capitan but it doesn't mean the same unless you're actually there, watching it, seeing it happen, touching it. 
Courtney and I had the opportunity to visit Paris. And on one of our dinners, we had this dessert of pears that were poached in wine. It was the most delicious thing we'd ever had. We tell this story even to this day. I'm telling it to you right now, of course, but we tell other people. We've never been able to replicate it. We've never been back. Anytime that we try to do it, it's not the same as that initial experience. Anytime we try to describe it to somebody, it doesn't match what the actual experience of eating those pears was. Today, as we have read and will continue to look at a few more post-resurrection experiences of Jesus, I think we'll get to see how that experience of seeing Jesus hits people in different ways. One with a specific request to actually touch, to see. We will see how Jesus is in our midst, meets us where we are at, and with what we need. We will see how an experience with the resurrected Jesus, wounds and all, can change us. Hopefully today I want you to walk away with this foundational truth, that an experience with the resurrected Christ invites us into new life and to acknowledge him wounds and all as both Lord and God. An experience with the resurrected Christ invites us into new life and to acknowledge him wounds and all as both Lord and God. Our reading today continues on the same day that Mary Magdalene saw Jesus had run to the tomb as John and Peter had run to the tomb. It was early in the morning on the first day of the week, it said, last week. And this reading continues on that evening on the first day of the week. Why is it important that John points out the first day of the week? It seems like a passing reference, but it's Sunday. We're here on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of a new week. It's the first day of creation. When God started creating in Genesis 1, it was the first day. It was Sunday. And on that day, as those disciples were huddled together in that room behind locked doors, you might say that was the first church service, even though they didn't quite know it yet. They were gathered together after the resurrected Jesus, after Jesus had been resurrected, after Peter and John had seen the empty tomb, after Mary had had her experience with Jesus. They're all huddled together wondering what's going on, but they're afraid. The doors are locked. They're not sure what to do. They're still confused. But then Jesus appears in their midst saying, peace be with you. This is an immense gift of Jesus. Peace be with you. Jesus doesn't come in and the first thing start accusing them of betraying him or running away or not being present. There are no demands of repentance. There are no expectations. Jesus doesn't walk in and be like, told you so. Imagine for a second you've invited somebody over for dinner. And they arrive at your door, they knock on the door, you you open the door ready to greet them, but suddenly they look around. Man, this house is dirty. When was the last time you dusted? These are some unique decorations. Why didn't you? Why shouldn't you have done this? 
doesn't feel very welcoming or hospitable, does it? Instead, imagine that person, as soon as they arrive, offers you a gift. Here's a present. Thank you for inviting me to dinner. They give you a warm smile and a hug. They bring peace. Jesus gives this warm welcome and greeting. He offers peace when there was fear. He offers peace when there was chaos and sadness. And in this, the first day of the week, a new week, a new life. Through forgiveness offered on the cross, as the hold of sin on the lives of everyone is finished, Jesus says, there is no reaccounting for what has been forgiven. Jesus doesn't go back to start pointing out where the disciples have failed. Jesus doesn't go back and reaccount everything that they missed up to that point. He walks in, he comes into that room and says, peace be with you. And the disciples' response is joy. They are overjoyed, it says. This is a fulfillment of what has been spoken previously throughout the Gospel of John. Going all the way back to John chapter 3, John the Baptist says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it is now complete. And now as Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you to the disciples, their joy is now complete like John because they have heard the bridegroom's voice. Jesus, just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 16, says, In a little while you will not see me, and then after a little while you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And here the disciples are experiencing that joy. Now there's another little odd nugget that gets referenced here that the disciples are behind locked doors. And that Jesus just appears in their midst. Now, I'm not sure Jesus is operating like some supernatural Kool-Aid man here, breaking through the walls, if you remember the commercials of old. Oh, yeah! There is something about Jesus coming in, I think, that there's much deeper going on. It's not odd for the earliest believers, those who probably would have been the first readers of this gospel, to have been meeting behind closed doors, probably with locked doors for fear of the authorities, the Jews, the Romans, whoever else out there might be coming for them. So I think there's something comforting to read in this gospel that, oh yes, that's, that's our experience too. It's also not odd for many believers in our present time. In other countries and places where Christianity is not held in favor, they have to meet behind locked doors. They have to meet out of fear sometimes that something might happen. But even amidst the fear, Jesus shows up. If Jesus showed up for those earliest disciples behind locked doors, we can believe that he'll show up here. We can believe that he'll show up behind locked doors wherever Christians are meeting One of my favorite psalms that I think hearkens to this image is Psalm 24. It says, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. I think we get an image of that happening here that there are no doors that can hold back the King of glory. There is no lock that he can't get through. There is no power in the world that's going to hold back the resurrected Jesus. When his people are gathered, there's nothing that's going to stop him from being in their midst. The point the author makes, one of the commentators I read says, is simply that the closed doors were no obstacle at all to the resurrected Jesus. This first interaction with the disciples concludes with Jesus breathing on the disciples for them to receive the Holy Spirit. This is a gift of new life, of new breath. As John has connected us way back at the beginning of John 1 to the creation story in Genesis, when John says, in the beginning, we're called to go back to the beginning where God was creating the world. And when he breathed life into Adam, the breath of life, here we have Jesus, the resurrected Christ, showing up with the disciples, breathing on them to fill them with the Holy Spirit, to give them new life. And as this was also promised through the prophet Ezekiel in the famous Valley of the Dry Bones passage, it's Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Jesus is breathing on these fearful and scared disciples who are now overjoyed at his presence to give them new life again as a symbol of something new is happening. This is a new thing in the world. Jesus is giving us a new path to walk. He has forgiven us. As any breath that we take is a gift. Everybody take a deep breath in right now. Let it out. That's a gift. Waking up in the morning and taking that first breath, that's a gift. That's what Jesus is giving to his disciples, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also does this thing where he shows up and he says, hey, look at my wounds. See my hands inside. He shows it to them. Hold on to that for a second because we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Let's just acknowledge that all the disciples, minus one, as we will find out, have just experienced a ground-shaking and life-altering experience. The summation of everything in Scripture, everything that John has been trying to get us to see, happens right here in this room. That Jesus shows up, the resurrected Christ appears, he offers peace, he breathes the Holy Spirit on the disciples, sending them on this new mission, this new life that they're going to be stepping into. It's a new day. It's a Sunday. It's a reminder of the new creation inaugurated by the resurrected Christ. So the foundational truth that I talked about, you get to see that here in the disciples, that an experience with the resurrected Christ invites us into new life. But John points out that somebody wasn't there. Somebody was missing. 
As if John hasn't given Peter enough grief for not being fast, for not being a fast runner and a slow believer, he picks on Thomas here a little bit for not being on time to the meeting. Thomas was late. He missed the first meeting. Here, John is reminding us that it's always good to be at church on time. Kidding. Now, it's interesting that the previously clueless disciples begin doing exactly what Jesus wants them to do. They start evangelizing with one of their own, Thomas. Thomas shows up. All the disciples come and say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We've had an experience with Jesus. They've been bearing witness to the resurrection. But Thomas is unique. Instead, he chooses to follow the advice that I grew up with on reading Rainbow by listening to LeVar Burton. He's not going to take their word for it. Thomas wants proof. And not just to see the figure of Jesus. He has an expectation, a desire to see Jesus' wounds. To see the marks in his hands and where the spear pierced his side. He wants to touch them. He wants to put his fingers in the wounds. All right, Bible nerd alert again for you all. The Greek word that is sitting behind the word in here means in. Into. Thomas doesn't want to just see, and yeah, that's great. Thomas wants to put his hands into the wound to know that it's real. You might say that Thomas is a tactile learner. He wants to touch. When Hannah, my youngest daughter, was in preschool, one of the teachers pulled me aside and said, I just want to let you know something, nothing bad, but just so you are aware going forward, Hannah is a tactile learner. It's like, oh, what does that mean? She wants to touch everything. She wants to learn with her hands. She wants to be in it all and mess it all up and put it all back together. And sometimes schools don't work that way, so it might be a challenge for her, but just so you know. It's like, okay, great. This is true. If there is mud, if there is a puddle, if there is anything that she can jump into, put her hands on, tear apart, put back together, she does it. We were at a birthday, she was at a birthday party this past weekend and the friends had a pond. She was the first one into the pond. Thomas is one of those. He has to explore, has to confirm with both sight and touch. Thomas is for all of us who need more than just words, who need more than just a clever argument. I think there's also beauty in this, and through Thomas's experiences, we will see that none of us here were there when Jesus first showed up. Like Thomas, none of us were here, were there on that first appearance. We're all like Thomas in that way. How can we hope to receive the gifts and experience the resurrected Christ if we weren't there? This is Thomas's fear, maybe. Did I miss out? I wasn't present. I think we all want a similar experience to Thomas as well. 
But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. The story continues in verse 26, where it says, A week later, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them this time. He took John's advice, didn't miss the meeting. Though the doors were locked, it says. A week later, Sunday, again. The doors are locked, again, following the same pattern. But this time, Thomas was there. And Jesus shows up again. Was Jesus listening? Did Jesus hear the request of Thomas that, I really want to see him again. I want to see him. I want to touch him. Maybe the disciples offered prayers for Thomas, asking that Jesus would show up. Who knows? But Jesus shows up for the disciple that needs him to show up. Jesus offers the same peace as he comes in. He says, peace be with you. And then without skipping a beat, he looks, (laughs) seems almost directly at Thomas, ready to offer him what he needed. Put your fingers here, Jesus says. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side, Jesus says. There's this incredible painting by Caravaggio, an Italian master, called The Incredulity Incredulity of Thomas. I have a picture of that one here. One of my favorites. There's many of this experience, but this is one of my favorites. Because Jesus is literally holding Thomas's hand and guiding it into the wound. Jesus is inviting Thomas, look, touch, this is me, this is real. And if you look close enough to Jesus's hands, you can see that there are nail marks even in this painting as well. So Thomas is having an up-close and personal experience with Jesus, invited by Jesus. Remember I said that we needed to wait to discuss the wounds, so let's talk about those now. What's important to understand about Jesus, you can leave that picture up for me, Abby, I'd appreciate that. What's important to understand about Jesus' body holding on to these wounds, that the wounds were not erased, is that Jesus' historical body has not been abandoned or discarded. The remaining wounds of Jesus prove that this Jesus standing before them, before Thomas, is the one who was crucified, who was stabbed with the spear, and who was dead. There's this historical, evidential proof for the first disciples, for Thomas, and for us. The remaining wounds of Jesus that exist in his resurrected, and some might even say perfected body, show us that this is essential to understanding who Jesus is and why he came. The wounds are essential to understanding who Jesus is and why he came. They're not an issue to be covered over. They're not a mistake to be removed. They're not a weakness that we need to overlook. But they became an essential part in identifying the resurrected Christ, essential to who Christ is, and essential to tell the story of what he accomplished for each and every one of us. I think, too, the remaining wounds of Jesus honor our own wounds, both physical and mental. 
that ultimately those wounds can be redeemed. It doesn't validate those who gave them. If somebody wounded you, they were in the wrong. But what it does is that God can do greater things in spite of those wounds. Harkening back to the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis, Joseph famously says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The God who redeemed wounds given to his own son can redeem our own wounds, which he can use just like Jesus here to tell the long story of a good God who can work through the worst of humanity. In your bulletin insert in this little gray box is a poem that I discovered and was referenced by many commentators as I was studying for this passage It's called Jesus of the Scars, and it was written by Edward Shalito in 1919. For the history buffs among you, you will realize that this happened shortly after World War I, when wounds and scars and death and destruction are in everybody's mind. The poem reads, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, are only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that sight of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. It's that last line, that last stanza, but to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. We can identify with this Jesus who is hurt, who has had wounds, and who has had them redeemed by God, and we can pray the same thing for the wounds that we have, whatever it is that God would redeem them. After his experience with Jesus, after seeing and touching the wounds, Thomas gives the first full confession of who Jesus is. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Never in all of the Gospels are these two words put together so closely. Sometimes you get my Lord. Mary said, Rabboni, teacher, when she heard Jesus' voice. But Thomas says, my Lord and my God, identifying Jesus for fully who he is. And isn't it seems such like a strong contrast to be putting hands in wounds to then turn around and say, my Lord and my God. Thomas's testimony echoes and fulfills The reminder from John 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
Jesus, after Thomas proclaims this and says, my Lord and my God, looks to Thomas and tells him that he is blessed because he has believed. But then he offers this reminder for all of us. Again, like last time I preached, we get to see ourselves in Scripture. Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. I don't think this is a more blessed state that we believe by not seeing, but Jesus connects us with what is happening in that room and in this moment. Yes, Thomas missed out the first time, but now he's getting to experience Jesus. And all of those who come after who get to experience Jesus, not in this same way, but in the own unique way, are to be blessed. They are part of the disciples in that first room who have had an encounter with Jesus. We can connect ourselves all the way back to that moment. We continue to bear witness that what those first disciples saw and have passed on is true because we know it to be true. We bear witness to Jesus through our own lives, through our own experiences, through our own wounds, through our own doubts, knowing that Jesus has shown up uniquely for each and every one of us. This passage concludes with a bit of a footnote from John saying, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. With Thomas's testimony, with these appearances to the disciples, we have arrived at the point that this whole gospel has been pointing to, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why we're here on a Sunday, 2,000 years after this event. Today you might be afraid like those first disciples. You may be confused like those first disciples. You may have wounds and you're wondering when they're going to heal. Today, Jesus wants to be right here in our midst saying, peace be with you. Touch my hand. Touch my side. See that this is real. Jesus wants you to learn how he can redeem your wounds, making them part of your testimony. Testimony of the power of Jesus in your life. So hopefully today, you can walk away with this basic point. That an experience with the resurrected Christ invites us into new life and to acknowledge him, wounds and all, as both our Lord and our God. Amen. If you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, He's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, He's a prison shaking savior. You got chains, He's a chain breaker. We've all searched for the light of day in the dead of night. We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. 
run from things we know that just ain't right. It's a better life. It's a better life. Cause you got pain. It's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. You got chains, he's a chain breaker. 